Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Friday, November 4th, 2022. It's been 3,173 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27th, 2014, and 254 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's go ahead and get started with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, our initial assessment that three missile carrier vessels of the Black Sea Fleet received slight to moderate damage during an attack on their home port of Sevastopol was accurate. Second, our assessment that Russia's accusation that Ukraine is preparing to use an improvised nuclear weapon as baseless was also accurate with the International Atomic Energy Agency completing the requested inspections and finding no activity. Third, we assess terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue across Ukraine. Fourth, we assess that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat ineffective and is only capable of mounting effective defensive operations. Fifth, We assess that the Russian Ministry of Defense is using recently mobilized troops for disorganized ad hoc attacks, wasting military resources on pointless offensive operations in the Donetsk Oblast. Sixth, we maintain that the so-called evacuations in Kherson have taken a dark turn and appear to be an organized genocide against the Ukrainian people. Seventh, we maintain that Russian forces will retreat from the west bank of the Dnipro over the next three to seven weeks. Eighth, we maintain that the private military company Wagner Group is spread too thin due to its expanding role in the Donetsk Oblast and the revelation of crippling battlefield losses. Ninth, we maintain that although the weather has improved in central and western Ukraine, Rasputitsa will continue to slow down combat operations for both belligerents. Tenth, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative— forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. Eleventh, we assess that the mobilization of 300,000 troops has not significantly improved Russian combat strength and exposed the training, logistical, and supply problems within the Russian Federation. On top of that, the new Mobics are suffering from catastrophic losses. And finally, we maintain that Russian forces in Belarus remain a credible threat, and that an invasion of western Ukraine is possible in the next 35 to 65 days. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. And quick errors and omissions. 
So yesterday, we reported that six rail cars carrying fuel were destroyed in a likely rocket attack fired by HIMARS near Chornobyevka. The reports of fuel storage being destroyed near Chornobyevka were accurate. On November 3rd, two videos emerged showing a fuel dump outside of Russian-controlled Snikhorivka under attack by Ukrainian forces. Both videos showed a blevy, that's B-L-E-V-E, boiling liquid evaporative vapor explosion, which would be more consistent with a rail car exploding. Neither video released yesterday provided enough resolution to confirm that the fuel storage in Snikhorivka was held in railroad cars. This may come across as pedantic, but the truth matters. Even the little truths. As always, we thank you for your understanding as we cut through the fog of war. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, Operational Command South, or OCS, and the Russian mill bloggers and news sources we follow did not report any ground fighting in the Kherson Oblast. The Russian Ministry of Defense made an unsupported claim that Ukrainian troops attacked Russian positions near Ishenka, Borozensky, Sukhanova, and Milova. Ukrainian social media accounts claimed that Malasidminucha had been liberated on November 3rd. As we had previously noted, the town was liberated six weeks ago, and there has been no change in status. Russian sources claimed that Ukrainian positions in Posad Pokrovsk and Luch, northwest of Kherson, were heavily shelled. OCS reported the Ukrainian Air Force completed four airstrikes, while ground forces executed 167 fire missions. The Ukrainian Air Force focused on suppress and destroy enemy air defense missions, destroying Russian anti-aircraft positions, and a concentration of Russian equipment located in a hangar. It is probable that that refers to the strike in the Bereslav Rayon. Artillery fire destroyed two Russian ammunition depots near Snikhorivka. The Russian MOD claims their air force destroyed a Ukrainian S-300 anti-aircraft launcher in Vysunsk without any evidence. The Kherson shipyards, where Russian forces have been accumulating and staging equipment, were attacked by rockets fired from HIMARS. Pictures showed that one of the Russian ferry crossings near the Antonovsky Bridge had been obliterated, with barge tugs heavily damaged and destroyed. Refusing to let operational security, or OPSEC, get in their way, Russian state media showed another operating ferry crossing by the Antonovsky Bridge, where shelters were added for people to hide in during attacks on the crossings. The situation in Kherson is somewhat chaotic, with significant signs that Russian forces are withdrawing from the city, while preparations for urban warfare are conducted simultaneously. Russian forces continue to sink pleasure craft and other boats at the river port for the second day in a row. There were reports that Russian troops had abandoned multiple checkpoints in Kherson and the suburbs to the west and northwest. Kherson Deputy Mayor Kirill Stremusov added to the confusion, stating that Russian forces would, quote, most likely pull back to the left bank of Kherson by the end of November and that residents of the city should, quote, leave. He later added that the withdrawal was not certain, but, quote, most likely. Stremisov later appeared on the east bank of the Dnipro in another video reporting on the people who remained in Kherson. In the city of Kherson, military vehicles drove through the streets, telling people that the Ukrainian army was approaching and residents were in, quote, imminent danger. 
Russian propagandist Sasha Kutz claimed that no checkpoints had been removed from Kherson while driving north of the city. The video, which was a little longer than a minute, was done at highway speed and never showed a Russian checkpoint. A social media video recorded the sound of cheering and clapping Ukrainians on a bus that passed through an abandoned Russian checkpoint. Russian troop rotations continued, with poorly trained and equipped Mobiks continuing to arrive. Russian forces blew up a pedestrian bridge that crosses the Inulets River near Snikhorivka that connects to Russian-occupied Vasilivka. It was one of the last intact crossing points that Russia controlled. Extensive looting, robberies, and kidnapping continued on both sides of the Dnipro. Some assessment here. There are no indications that Russian VDV forces in Snikhorivka, Bruskinsky, and Melova, and Russian naval infantry forces west of Kherson have started to retreat or are being replaced by undertrained Mobics. The destruction of the pedestrian bridge negates the possibility that Russian troops could retreat from Snikhorivka across the Inulets and use the river as a natural defensive boundary. We continue to believe that Russian forces will leave the west bank of the Dnipro River within the next three to seven weeks. Logistics and supply are slowly choking off the ability of Russian ground forces to conduct counter-battery and artillery strikes. On the east bank of the Dnipro, Russian sources reported the administration building in Kholapristan was completely destroyed in a rocket attack by HIMARS. Ethnic cleansing under the guise of martial law and Russian security continued along the Dnipro unabated. The Russian MOD continued targeted attacks on the Ukrainian power grid, forcing the South Ukraine nuclear power plant near Mykolaiv to reduce power to Reactor 1 by 50%. Russian attacks in other parts of Ukraine knocked out one of three 750-kilovolt lines connecting the plant to the Ukrainian power grid. The reduction in output was taken as a safety measure. At least one Russian S-300 anti-aircraft missile used for a ground attack struck the port in Mykolaiv, destroying a terminal leased by a Chinese company and 17,000 tons of food-grade sunflower oil awaiting export, valued at $26 million. There were no reports of casualties, and at the time of recording there had not yet been a statement made by the Chinese government. A second round of S-300 missiles struck Mykolaiv overnight, causing damage to warehouses holding grain and parked cars. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, released a statement on the status of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant that confirmed our report yesterday that the plant had lost connection to the power grid and had been forced to operate using diesel generators for internal power. The very same 750-kilovolt power line that forced a reduction of power output at the South Ukraine nuclear power plant resulted in the power loss at ZNPP. The IAEA inspectors were told there were two faults in the line 50 to 60 kilometers away from the facility in Enerjodar. Repair work on the 330-kilovolt line was ongoing. Russian drone and missile strikes on the Ukrainian electrical grid have specifically targeted the 330-kilovolt infrastructure on a nationwide scale. IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi said, quote, This is an extremely concerning development that again demonstrates the plant's fragile and vulnerable situation. 
Despite the best efforts of the plant's courageous staff to stabilize the external power situation in recent weeks, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has again lost all access to off-site electricity. For now, it receives the power it needs from the on-site diesel generators, but this is clearly not a sustainable way to operate a major nuclear facility. Measures are needed to prevent a nuclear accident at the site. The establishment of a nuclear safety and security protection zone is urgently needed. End quote. Director Grossi did not provide an update on creating a demilitarized zone around the plant, nor is there any information on the kidnapped Enerhuatam employee who has been in Russian custody for three weeks. The IAEA did not validate Russian claims that the plant and the area immediately around it had been shelled for the last two days. Enerhuatam did report that up to 30 mines had been triggered around the plant during the last three months due to dogs, foxes, and wild boars. A major fish kill in the plant's cooling ponds was caused by the water temperature dropping below 13 degrees Celsius. Just a little note here, fish will frequently gather around the coolant outlet areas of thermal power plants to take advantage of the warmer water at the outlets and the food it attracts. The current inspection team with the IAEA has completed its four-week mission and was replaced with a new team of four. The rotation happened without incident, and the previous inspection team safely crossed into free Ukraine. Russian forces launched another wave of Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones over Dnipropetrovsk. Officials reported that all eight drones were shot down in the Nikopol district. Nikopol, Markhanets, Chervonoryorivka, and Mirova were struck by artillery and grad rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS. At the time of recording, there were no reports of serious damage or injuries. Russian forces launched a barrage of S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for a ground attack on several towns in Free Zaporizhia. One missile caused significant damage to a gas pipeline, while the rest landed in unpopulated areas. A railroad bridge in Russian-occupied Svitlodolinsk was hit by four rockets. The status of the steel frame bridge is currently unknown. The strike on the Refma plant in Melitopol that we covered on Wednesday's episode was apparently devastating. The upper three floors of the office building, which housed the headquarters for the FSB, were completely destroyed. An adjacent hangar that held up to 80 pieces of military equipment was badly damaged, and there were reports of ammunition cooking off with secondary explosions that threw debris over a two-city block area. There was only sporadic artillery fire from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Khulyapola to Orekhiv to Sherbaki. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southwest Donetsk. Russian forces continued their offensive operations in the Vulidar area from Novomayorsk to Mikilsk. Ukrainian forces continued to repel Russian advances on Prechistivka. Russian mill bloggers report that weather conditions, mud, and fresh Ukrainian reinforcements have slowed the offensive to recapture Pavlivka. Russian military leaders have been throwing inexperienced, under-equipped, and poorly trained mobics at the strategically unimportant town since October 30th and have suffered catastrophic casualties for only incremental gains. 
Our map on October 29th likely overstated Russian territorial control, with Ukraine likely still controlling parts of Yehorivka before the Russian offensive. The slowdown in operations has more likely been caused by the loss of combat strength along the front. Russian sources claim Ukraine launched an attack from Vremivka involving a squad and a single infantry fighting vehicle. We cannot confirm the veracity of that report. Fighting on the eastern edge of Novobakhmutivka continued, with no change in the situation. Russian sources claimed there was continued fighting in the eastern parts of Marinka. On the eastern edge of Marinka, DNR militia forces staged a large cluster of landmines at the edge of a major road, likely in preparation to deploy them. A Ukrainian drone armed with a mortar shell discovered the target of opportunity, and I reckon you know what happens next. The explosion that followed would make any Tannerite-loving American green with envy. A nearby Russian infantry fighting vehicle, which had mines stacked on top of it, was entirely obliterated. The People's Militia of the DNR Public Relations Channel claimed their forces destroyed an M777 mm howitzer, two main battle tanks, and ten, quote, armored and automotive vehicles, as usual, without evidence of any kind. Given the reports of limited fighting across Donetsk, these claims are pretty sus. Ukrainian forces completed 263 fire missions in the occupied territories. Russian sources accused Ukraine of shelling a school in Donetsk. Although the report is accurate, School 91 is located in the Gray Zone near Marinka and is used as a base of operations for the 1st Army Corps of the DNR. There was a missile strike in Russian-occupied Makivka, but there wasn't any information on the target or casualties at the time of recording. Pavlo Kirilenko, Donetsk Oblast administrative and military governor, did not report any significant shelling in the areas of Free Ukraine, northeast, west, and southwest of Donetsk. The city of Pokrovsk was hit by six S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for a ground attack, with three striking an empty school. Long lines to leave the DNR continued for a third day at the Uspenka border crossing into Russia. Further east, huge lines of cars and trucks were waiting to exit Donetsk at the marinivka kuybyshevo border crossing. It remains unclear why there is an exodus of people leaving the illegally annexed territory of Donetsk. In northeast Donetsk, Russian and Ukrainian sources reported continued fighting on the eastern outskirts of Bakhmut, with no change in the situation. The commander-in-chief of the armed forces of Ukraine, Valery Zaluzhny, said that the Russians had tripled the intensity of hostilities in certain areas. Although the GSAFU did not specifically report that Bakhmut and Solidar were one of those areas, Russian sources, including the private military company or PMC Wagner Group, reported intense fighting in the no-man's land east and southeast of Bakhmut. There were no other specific reports of fighting in northeast Donetsk. Moving on to Luhansk. Yeah, there were no credible reports of significant fighting here either along the entire front. The Russian MOD made a laughable and baseless claim that two companies of foreign mercenaries, that's 400 to 500 troops, attempted an advance from Novoselitsky. Serhii Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, toured Stelmachivka, 
which is only three kilometers from where, allegedly, Russian troops had a glorious victory over pro-Satan foreign mercenaries. Or, oh wait, no, is it pro-Nazi? Oh, sorry, no, they were NATO troops. Cut me some slack, okay? It's really hard to keep up with Russian propaganda. Haidai met with Ukrainian troops and local residents who didn't mention foreign mercenaries. For some reason. There were non-specific reports of fighting northwest and west of Kremina, near Makivka, Nevsky, Ploshanka, and Chervonopopivka, and positional fighting on the outskirts of Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Moving on to the Kharkiv region. There was no significant fighting reported in this region either, but... Russian mill blogger Real Colonel Z wrote one of the most amazing pieces of Russian fanfiction we've ever read. According to the Telegram channel, three missiles struck the Kumunar plant in Kharkiv, where M-30 and M-31 rockets for the HIMARS systems are manufactured. Someone needs to tell the tankies and Vatniks on Twitter that Raytheon no longer makes rockets for HIMARS. See, because it came from a trusted Russian source in their eyes— it certainly must be true. So, a quick note here. It's not true. It's not at all true. The rockets for HIMARS are made in Camden, Arkansas, in the United States. Not in Kharkiv. In the Cherniev and Sumy region, Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the Romadas of Bilopilia, Esmen, Znobnovhorodsk, Krasnopilia, Shalekhin, Yunakivka, and Seredina Buda were hit by artillery mortars, rockets, and drones fired from across the Russian border. The Bilopilia area was hit by almost 50 mortars, damaging the local cultural center, homes, and a farm. One house caught fire after the attack. There was a small border skirmish in Khotin, with Ukrainian border guards and Russian troops briefly exchanging small arms fire without casualties. In the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, Open-source intelligence has completed an analysis of the available videos, photos, and satellite imagery after the attack on the Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol. It appears the unmanned surface vessels, or USF, used by Ukraine struck three ships. Because the blasts were above the waterline, the damage was believed to be minimal. The Admiral Grigorovich-class missile frigate Admiral Makarov was likely struck at sea, while the Admiral Essen was hit at its dock. A third Krivuk-class frigate was also struck. Geolocation showed that one of the USFs was able to reach the secured missile loading dock deep within the port. It is likely the Krivuk-class frigate was the vessel hit in that area. Fun and totally unrelated fact, I'm sure, OCS reported there weren't any Black Sea Fleet vessels on patrol yesterday with the capability to launch caliber cruise missiles. In western and central Ukraine, Units of the Air Command West of the Armed Forces of Ukraine shot down a Shahed-136 Kamikaze drone over the Lviv Oblast. There were no reports of injuries or damage. Moving on to the Russian front, it has been almost a month since the Kerch Bridge was severely damaged in an explosion, and repair work continues. 
Russian engineers have finished removing the destroyed road deck of the eastbound lanes. One of the cranes involved in the repair efforts appears to be a recently stolen piece of Ukrainian infrastructure. How do we know, you might ask? Because it's painted in the blue and yellow of the Ukrainian flag. Russian officials have finally admitted that the road bridge is only lightly used and is closed to civilian traffic. Since the tracks were cleared, only 16, quote, light trains have passed through the damaged rail section. Full repairs are not expected to be completed until July 2023. Russian sources reported that the border town of Butki in the Bilgorod Oblast and Tietkno in the Kursk Oblast were shelled by Ukrainian forces. A Russian firebase that has shelled Sumy Oblast for months is located in Tietkno, and both belligerents frequently trade artillery and mortar shells. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. The IAEA concluded Ukraine is not producing dirty bombs after completing its inspection of three locations in Ukraine. Inspectors visited the Institute for Nuclear Research in Kyiv, the Eastern Mining and Processing Plant in Zhovtikodi, and the Production Association Pivdeni Machine Building Plant in Dnipro, after a request by Ukrainian officials in compliance with the Budapest Memorandum. IAEA officials said they had full cooperation from Ukraine and unfettered access to all facilities. Director General Grossi said, quote, our technical and scientific evaluation of the results we have so far did not show any sign of undeclared nuclear activities and materials at these three locations. Additionally, we will report on the results of the environmental sampling as soon as possible. End quote. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky applauded the findings, saying, quote, The only dirty things in our region right now are the heads of those in Moscow who, unfortunately, seized control of the Russian state and are terrorizing Ukraine and the whole world. End quote. At the time of recording, Moscow had not made a statement about the IAEA findings. We're guessing that the inside voice is like somewhere between curses, foiled again, and bliat. Russia's ambassador to the United Kingdom, Andrei Kalin, claims that Russia has proof that the UK blew up the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines and provided his counterpart with that proof. Kalin said the attacks happened, quote, under the guidance and leadership of British Navy specialists, end quote, and the evidence, quote, will become public pretty soon, perhaps today, perhaps tomorrow, end quote. Russia has yet to make its proof of combat mosquitoes raised in biolabs publicly available, but we'll keep waiting. We can be patient. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba showed parts of an Iranian-made Shahed-136 drone that had recently been used in an attack on Kyiv to members of the G7 nations. He called for Iran to, quote, cease supplying weapons to Russia and called for stiffer sanctions. After the meeting, Iran repeated its claims that it was not supplying Russia with drones and offered to do a joint investigation. The Iranian Ministry of Foreign Affairs advised the Ukrainian party to stay realistic and instead of publishing alleged false accusations against Tehran, seriously consider a constructive proposal to hold a bilateral expert technical meeting once Kyiv may provide evidence. Hmm. Mm-hmm. 
General Atomic reported the Pentagon has approved providing Ukraine with MQ-9 Grey Eagle UAVs. The MQ-9 is not a kamikaze drone and is capable of carrying Hellfire missiles. The report in Jane's did not provide many details, with a spokesperson from General Atomic saying they didn't want to undermine the progress made by providing too many specifics. The Grey Eagle drones were originally committed to Ukraine in July, but Pentagon watchdogs raised concerns about the technology falling into Russian hands if a drone were to be shot down. Speaking of shot down, let's talk about Russian mobilization. The British Ministry of Defense validated our assessment that recently deployed MOBICs are ill-equipped, have little impact on the battlefield, and are being slaughtered at an unsustainable rate. British Defense Intelligence reported that since mid-October, Russian forces are losing over 40 armored vehicles a day, the equivalent of an entire combat battalion. Over the last half of October, the loss of the equivalent of 15 battalions equals the destruction of an entire army. Mobics have to operate much older BMP-1 infantry fighting vehicles and MTLBs, initially designed in the 1950s. Mobics have taken to calling the outdated military hardware aluminum cans. The Defense Intelligence Agency also validated our earlier report that Belarus provided up to 100 main battle tanks to Russia for use in Ukraine. Officials in Karelia Federal District admitted that the commissariat has continued mobilization in defiance of the order from the Kremlin. Artur Parfenchikov claims that another round of mobilization is required because so many illegally mobilized residents are being sent back to their homes and they have to fill the gap. Officials claim that as of November 2nd, no more summons would be issued. Residents of the kabardina balkaria Federal District also reported that mobilization continued, including people being conscripted off the streets. In Khantimansiski Autonomu Okrug, State Duma Deputy Maxim Ivanov reported he had received 146 appeals from MOBICs sent to Ukraine without proper training or equipment. Ivanov called the situation, quote, unacceptable, and had reached out to Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu. The deputy commented, quote, what benefit will an untrained guy bring, for example, at a checkpoint near Donetsk? Probably the minimum, end quote. Quick editor's note here. In our analyst community, we call untrained MOBICs speed bumps because they really only slow the ongoing Ukrainian offensives. They do not stop them. In the Peskov Federal District, locals report that MOBICs are receiving no support or training. Under Governor Mikhail Vidyarnikov's declaration that mobilization had been completed, a woman wrote that the MOBICs in the community are homeless, freezing, sick, and have no equipment. The Russian conscripts claim they are appealing to any authority they can think of while receiving no help. In Perm, Mobics living in poor conditions are dealing with an outbreak of lice at the training center in Elani. State Duma Deputy Ivanov visited the facility personally and had portable showers deployed. Ivanov claimed he saw no evidence of a lice outbreak, but officials are bringing in barbers to provide haircuts. At the very same training center, Mobics also complained they are receiving no training. Conscripts reported they repeatedly marched to the gun range in groups of 100, where less than a third fired any weapons. Then they are told they have run out of ammunition and march back. 
They also reported that when they were sent to the grenade range for practice, there were no grenades to throw, and after waiting for two hours, were sent back to their barracks. In the Karma Federal District, officials have received over 3,000 appeals from relatives of Mobics who have not received promised payments and state aid. Some families' needs are as basic as receiving the firewood government officials promised. In Chermyanka Bilgorod, up to 350 drunken Mobics arrived at the train station for so-called training and were not met by any military officials. The agitated conscripts became uncontrollable, creating an emergency situation and overwhelming military police. Local officials have asked for the Russian National Guard to be deployed at the station for future arrivals. On VK, the Russian equivalent to Facebook, residents of Bilgorod reported that a Mobik who was sent to fight in Ukraine on October 8th, two days after conscription, died on October 18th. Posts said, quote, He was mobilized on September 24th to a motorized rifle company in the Voronezh region in the city of Boguchar, where he spent a week. On October 8th, he was sent to Luhansk. End quote. And, quote, why do they say that they are sent there to the training ground for training and the guys die on the front line? End quote. Two more Russian lieutenant colonels and a full colonel were killed in action in late October. Lieutenant Colonel Kardashev Ivan was a battalion commander and was killed on October 20th. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Zangev Vyacheslav Mikhailovich, a pilot with PMC Wagner, was killed after the MI-8 helicopter he was flying was shot down. It was unclear if he was behind the controls of the MI-8 chopper shot down outside Beristova in Donetsk last week. Colonel Bespalov Andriy Pavlovich was also killed in action, although his in-memoriam on VK did not provide additional details. Let's move to assessment here. Sharp-eared listeners may have caught in our daily assessment that we moved the Russian military from combat destroyed to combat ineffective. We made the change because of the presence of 87,000 Mobics. Even if Russia is losing up to 1.5% of them a day, their presence has slowed Ukrainian offensive operations. However, the Mobic forces have demonstrated in Kherson, Donetsk, Kharkiv, and Luhansk that they cannot carry out successful offensive operations because of poor training, a lack of equipment, no leadership, and the Russian Ministry of Defense still using reinforcements for ad hoc attacks. Honestly, almost no amount of troops will change the battlefield situation unless the Kremlin addresses the systemic problems within the Russian military. And that will never happen as long as Sergei Shoigu is the Russian Minister of Defense. According to Russian President Vladimir Putin, though, all is going to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Russia and Ukraine did another prisoner of war swap. 107 POWs from each belligerent were exchanged. Six officers and 101 enlisted men were swapped, including 74 Azovstal defenders. The Russian Ministry of Defense reported 107 soldiers were returned and will soon be sent to Moscow. The Russian Duma criminalized surrendering in September, punishable with up to 10 years in prison. Residents of Mariupol waited in line for hours to receive electrical heaters, 
despite large areas of the city having no power since the March siege. After waiting for hours, many left empty-handed. Russian officials had initially promised to open warming centers throughout the city for the winter heating season, and never delivered the infrastructure. Residents who got a heater were told they couldn't use any other electrical devices or appliances when running it. Russian officials have started filtration in Pisky, in Luhansk. Thirty Ukrainians were detained as part of the sweep. The whereabouts and conditions of the people are unknown. Ukrainian officials have completed the civilian evacuation of Marinka, near Donetsk, after eight months of trying to get everyone to leave the beleaguered city. The city has been under continuous attack since late February, and Russian artillery has reduced the buildings to rubble. In geopolitical news, President Zelensky and Moldovan President Maya Sandu had a telephone conversation about the Russian missile that crashed into her nation. Zelensky said after their call, quote, We discussed current energy and security challenges for our countries. I mentioned the Russian aerial terror, which has also affected Moldova recently. We exchanged views of the fall of the missile on its, being Moldova's, territory, end quote. Sandu ordered the expulsion of one Russian diplomat after the missile landed in Moldova. The Kremlin criticized the move and promised a tit-for-tat response. With the G20 summit in Indonesia less than a week away, it remains unclear if Russian President Putin will attend. President Zelensky had initially stated he would attend the G20 meeting, but announced that if Putin goes, he won't participate. Joko Widodo, Indonesia's president, contacted Zelensky personally and extended another invite to the Ukrainian president. If Zelensky were to attend, it would not be in person due to security concerns caused by the ongoing war. Irish officials announced the nation could no longer accept Ukrainian refugees because they had run out of resources for housing and support services. Foreign Minister Simon Coveney said, quote, Available state-provided accommodation is now very restricted. There have been instances in recent days during which we could not temporarily place newly arrived Ukrainians and others, such as those seeking international protection, in suitable accommodation. End quote. Coveney appealed for Ukrainians to understand the situation and said that Ireland remains committed to supporting Ukraine in other ways. In economic news, the ruble was unchanged, with an exchange rate of 62 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices climbed, with WTI rising to $91 a barrel and Brent reaching $97. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market climbed to $2.77 a gallon, or 73 cents a liter. EU Dutch TTF natural gas futures declined, falling to €123 per megawatt hour for December 2022 contracts. January 2023 contracts also dropped, reaching €131. Chicago SRW wheat futures rose to $8.71 a bushel for March 2023 contracts in volatile trading. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.